0: Well, when we uh, study the Bible, something that's helpful to remind ourselves of from time to time is that the chapter and verse references uh, that we are accustomed to, uh, which are of course very helpful, those chapter and verse references aren't part of the original inspired text. In verse 8, we know those place markers with the chapter and verse weren't put there by the Apostle John. They're not part of the inspired text. Uh, In fact, they're actually not introduced to to the scriptures printed until the Middle Ages. It wasn't until 1227. And in 1227, there was a professor of Latin at the University of Paris at the time named Stephen Langton uh, who put these chapter and verse divisions in the Bible in order to to assist his students with the study of of the Bible. Obviously, it's a very practical and educational addition to put these these in so that we can find places together in our Bibles. The divisions were helpful and the divisions have stuck. Uh, We still have them in our English Bibles. And, and again, oftentimes, these are, these are very helpful. They do seem to occur regularly at natural transition points in the books of the Bible as we go through in love studies. And we wonder why Langton put the divisions where he did, or verse numbers even, where he did, uh, because it can be strange placement at times. Uh, so, so much so, that, but the resting in the chapter and verse divisions, uh, most of the time he was sitting down at, the de- at his desk, but the rest of the time he was galloping at full pace on his horse through a bumpy field. So you've got these, you know, random entries of of, of chapters and verses, which which is one of those things we recognize as we come to this section uh, dividing Hebrews chapter 12 and Hebrews chapter 13. Um, He must have been on his horse for this one when he put this division in. In fact, uh, the chapter division between 12 and 13 has actually caused enough trouble in the studies of Hebrews where, where there are a few, there's not a lot, but there are a few scholars who have decided that chapter 13 was actually just tacked on to Hebrews at a later time and not even part of the original discourse. So, so they think that chapter 13 wasn't part of, of what was going on there simply because it's, it's just ethical instruction. Uh, as one scholar put it, it, it can seem to be just a loose stringing together of assorted practical uh, instructions there. It's just tacked on. Uh, so some will take it that maybe 13... You know, this random switch from these glo- the glories of theology to let brotherly love continue. It's just some good ethics, but just tacked on there at the end, um, which, of course, is wrong. Ch- chapter 13 is, isn't just a loose string of practical instructions separated from the main point of the book of Hebrews, but instead, what we discover is that... Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 provides a very critical contribution to our understanding of how to live in light of all that Hebrews has been showing us is true about knowing the Lord Jesus. So so chapter 13 isn't just tacked on, but what we'll see is it's actually vitally attached uh, to the rest of the letter. And part of the way this attachment becomes clear is is that if we could go maybe back to, to Professor Langton and do some revised chapter markings, if we did that, we'd want to say that the best place to make the division between chapter 12 and 13 is actually in our verses this morning. Chapter 12, verse 28 would make a much better chapter beginning than chapter 13, verse 1. And that's because chapter 12, verse 28 very naturally begins this final exhortation section of Hebrews. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 1 isn't the start of the final exhortation or instruction. Chapter 12, verse 28 is. And we we can understand that because of a a number of grammatical clues. Uh, some of which we'll just see today in the flow of the argument. Some we'll save for, for next week. Um, but the connection is there for us as we see that, that this sermon is ending. And as this sermon ends, the preacher has this very high and final priority of, of instruction here for his congregation in that he wants them to see that, that as Christian believers who are both accepted by God through the significance of what Jesus Christ has done, which is a huge theme in Hebrews, we're both accepted by God, and not only that, uh, but, but we're actually able to have access to the living God because of what Christ has done. Because this is true, the preacher wants us to understand as a matter of, of final and really preeminent importance because of all that's been given to us in Jesus Christ, we are called now to live this liturgical life. We're called to live a liturgical life. So think this out with me a little bit. Um, the, the, this English word liturgy, which, which we pick because it very directly translates the Greek word that's in our text here, which, which appears in verse 28, where it's translated as serve in the, in the CSB or worship, if you're using the ESV. But it's the Greek word litruo. So, so, so in our common way of speaking, when we say liturgy, uh, that, that brings a, a fairly closed definition to mind. Now, if we talk about something being liturgical, probably uh, the first thing we think of, it's the first thing I think of, uh, is, is in the realm of a public worship service on Sunday morning, especially if we've been around some more formal church environments. Uh, liturgy immediately brings to mind the format of public service on Sunday, and that's Of course, a very legitimate use of the term, liturgy by definition, both the Greek and the English terminology, is a word that describes the form of our worship or service, especially as it relates to God. So Sunday morning service, or Sunday morning liturgy, involves all these things we do together. So we come and we read the Scriptures and we sing and we preach and we participate in the sacraments, all of these kinds of things, reflects our service of worship to the living God. It's liturgical for us on Sunday mornings. But... The term can be bigger than merely referencing the order of service and the form of worship for our corporate gatherings on the Lord's Day. Liturgy, again, strictly defined, is our form of worship or service. And while on Sundays our form of worship takes the shape, like like we do every Sunday, uh, responding to Jesus and all that's offered in Him means more than just our order of service on Sunday morning. So responding to Jesus, which we know means that our whole life is actually a matter of liturgy. Our whole life is a matter of living in this posture of worship before God. Which is when Paul, why Paul can talk about what he does when he says we present our bodies as living sacrifices. The totality of who we are is now liturgical in Christ. And and it's this amazing reality that the preacher is going to unpack for us as we work through the final section of Hebrews here. Because it's not just that Jesus opened access to God for for our public worship on Sunday. And it's not just that Jesus uh, opened up access to that heavenly citizenship that we look forward to participating in fully one day. But the preacher wants to make it clear that Jesus has brought us into this relationship of acceptance and access to God in such a way that our whole life now is lived in this posture of reverential acknowledgement and praise before the living God. All of life is worship. And this is a reminder that that we need often. I, I need this reminder often because it's very easy to fall into the trap of compartmentalizing our Christian life. Uh, we, we can start to think that Jesus is, is, is just one part of our life, certainly he's an important part of our life, but he, but he fits in there along with a whole bunch of other important parts. So, so it's very easy to start to, to think that I've got, you know, I have a professional life over here, I have a family life, I have, I have a social life, I have a financial life, uh, and, and then tucked right in there with all of that, I also have this religious life, I have my life of faith. We can fall into thinking in in these kinds of categorical, uh, separate sections of life kind of ways. And what the preacher of Hebrews is going to show us moving forward is that because of what's true for us now in Christ, there's ultimately not one single aspect of our lives that's actually separated from the divine gospel liturgy of our lives. So, so because of what Jesus has accomplished, there's no part of who we are that's actually disconnected or sectioned off from the service of worship before the living God. So, so thinking along these lines, it's the Dutch theologian Herman Bovink who, who I love, he's always so helpful for me, but, but, but he put it really well when he says this about Christianity. He says, this is not a piece of life, but life itself. Our entire life must be serving God. And that's no small thing to wrap our minds around. That's a truth that takes some work to understand. We start asking the question, what does it mean, for example, for my work life to be conducted in such a way as to reflect the worship of the living God? Well, what does it mean for my family and social and financial life? to be formed in such a way that it reflects liturgical worship, that it reflects a form of service before the living God? How do we think well about living this liturgical life in response to all that's been done for us in Christ? And it's this kind of question that the preacher of Hebrews begins to address very directly in this last portion of Hebrews as we finish the letter, really up through the benediction of chapter 13. And and it's what we started on this morning. Uh, As as we we recognize, the real beginning of this final exhortation section begins with that therefore, that conclusion word there that that we have in verse 28. Uh, So today we're going to focus on verses 28 and 29. We'll spill over into chapter 13 just a little bit to get context. But but in our verses today, what, what we're going to see is that the preacher is laying the groundwork. He's going to work it out more later on. But right now he's laying the groundwork for our liturgical life. He's giving us a foundational framework that we need if we're going to think about the totality of our life as lived in the worship of God. So, so we're going to go through these verses this morning, and, and we'll, work out, we'll work out a statement as we go, um, and, and we'll, just, we'll just do it piece by piece. So uh, if you look at verse 28, first of all, we'll take the first part of it there, where the preacher gives us a critical truth, He tells us, first of all, that we are receiving an unshakable kingdom. So we're receiving an unshakable kingdom, uh, which is what he says there. Therefore, since we're receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken. So so the preacher's starting the final section of this discourse by really restating uh, this extraordinary truth that's attached to all that he has been saying earlier in chapter 12. He, He speaks about this unshakable kingdom. Which is a reference back to the quote earlier in chapter 12 where the Lord spoke through the prophet Haggai so many hundreds of years earlier and promised, if you remember this from last week, that one day he would shake the earth and the heavens. So, so back in Haggai chapter 2, uh, there was that reference to God's future promise of establishing that final a new creation, harmonious order under the sovereign reign of Christ, ultimately where God dwells with His people. It, it's a new creation promise where all the kingdoms of the world are subjected eternally to the righteous reign of God's King, of King Jesus. And, and, and in that future reality, all that doesn't accord with Christ and His kingdom, as, as Haggai explains things, all that doesn't accord with the good way of God's way of life is going to be Shaken. And in other words, God's hand of judgment is going to be extended in such a way that in that heavenly new creation, we'll be rid of all that's contrary to God's life, to God's way of life for us. And and His kingdom is going to be the the forever standing kingdom of glory. It's the unshakable kingdom. And, And so the preacher here reminds these Christians that through Christ, we are receiving this unshakable kingdom. So so this reality of all things being made new because of Jesus, this hope of heaven, sorrows removed forever, wholeness being restored and and, and remade and resurrection reality, all of those kinds of things, this hope of heaven, the preacher is saying, is being given to us as a gift, so so God's presence among us, and, and and it's not just that this gift will come one day in the far, far future, so we sit and wait. But you notice the point he's making here as he says, uh, as he brings about this this, uh, indicator of of present reception that's currently going on in the lives of these believers. So so he's he's not saying, since we're going to receive this unshakable kingdom that's out there in the beyond and we just hope for it someday, which of course is true, we are going to receive that. But you notice how he's emphasizing something unique here when he says, since we are receiving. There's something present going on with the kingdom activity that he's speaking about. So, so in other words, while while we still wait for the fullness of Jesus' return and all things made new climactically, even now we're currently in the process of being affected by By the unshakable righteous reality of the kingdom of Christ. We're currently experiencing some unshakable truths of Jesus' kingly rule and reign right now as Christian believers. We wait for the fullness, but there's something present even now. And even as we think back on all we've been told in Hebrews, this makes extraordinary sense of so much of the the truth that the preachers recounted for us. What have we already been told? Well, we've been told things like we're currently citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. Right now, we're citizens of that heavenly kingdom. Though we wait for it in its fullness, we're currently citizens of that kingdom. And it's not just that we're currently citizens of God's heavenly kingdom, but we're actually currently children of God the Father. We are right now part of the family of God. And and not only are we God's people in that unique way, but what else has Hebrews made an extraordinary point to emphasize, uh, but, but that through Christ we also have access to God's presence currently because of what Jesus has done. So not only are we right now God's people, but we also through Christ right now have access to God's presence. Of course, it's not the fullness of what we look forward to, but it is in the now, through the open way that Christ has made, we are able to come before the throne of grace and find mercy to help us in our time of need. That's Hebrews chapter 4. So we've already seen how the preachers unpack the fact that the kingdom realities we look forward to in a climactic and ultimate way are not only out there in the future for us, but they're actually something that is also being experienced currently by us because of what Jesus has done. We are currently receiving the unshakable kingdom. Nothing can shake our access to the living God because Jesus accomplished that. Nothing can shake the fact that we're children of the living God because Jesus accomplished that. These are unshakable truths that are currently real about us. So the preacher lays this truth out for the congregation and he says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, So so he's saying, since you're currently in the process of of taking in and being affected by and formed and transformed and upheld and renewed and forgiven and and cared for and maintained, all these things, since all of this is yours, there's this response we ought to have. That's where he's going to go next. There's this response that we're supposed to have. But, but just before we get to that response, it does repay us just to think for a minute on what's being said right here, especially as we think about, again, the first audience of Hebrews, how they would need to reflect on this. They, they lived in times that could absolutely be described as extremely shaky. They lived in shaky. They lived in a context that meant uh, very little worldly stability for them because of their commitment to Jesus, so much so that even their property could be seized. Uh, because uh, by, by the Roman government, because they were Christians, that's an unshaky, pl- that's a shaky place to be. Instability marked their days as followers of Jesus in society, and we could often recognize that that same concern in our own in our own culture and time. To be a Christian, to commit to to what it looks like to follow Jesus and name him as our King, to do that doesn't seem to be the stable ground very often, but instead, it's often to put ourselves in a much more shaky place, culturally speaking. We we feel the shakiness of following Jesus as we think about these things. For for example, it puts us on on shaky ground professionally, just to hold to certain ethical commitments that are aligned with Jesus, but what we discover is they're diametrically opposed, maybe, to the unspoken policy in the office. We, We know this kind of shakiness. But, but, but as the preacher is going to compel us forward in this life of worship, as, as we see this, this gospel prerogative of worship-centered lives unfold, he knows we need to have Christ-centered stability rule the day instead of the instability we feel from the world around us. That's not the final word in our lives, he's saying. We need to be reminded that actually it is the unshakable kingdom that's ours. What seems sturdy now, if we were to just make a list, what seems so sturdy socially and culturally, and even personally sometimes, what seems so sturdy now is going to one day bump up against the fact that God will return and do the shaking, and all that's contrary to His perfection and holiness and justice and goodness and truth, all that's contrary to that will be shaken and crumbled. These things that right now seem so high and sturdy and immovable, the ethics or lack thereof, the the, the ambitions, the hubris of humanity, the the self-satisfied sense of, of doing what I want and demanding support for how I feel, all that's going to come tumbling down because these things we see in the world around us, though they appear so sturdy, ultimately they're not attached to the preeminent king of the unshakable kingdom. But the preacher says, you are. You're attached to him. He's your king. This unshakable kingdom is yours. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, he's going to say this impacts everything. Now, not just in the future in terms of our hope, but this impacts how we're living in the now. And, and, so, and so we ask ourselves, well, what, is the, what is the impact of receiving this kingdom as we live in the now? What, what ought this to do to us? He says, since, since we have this, okay, so what is, what, what is the outworking of that? Because this is ours, well, how does that affect us? And, and he goes on next to say that, that in verse 28, that since we're receiving this kingdom that, that can't be shaken, this actually compels a response of gratitude. A response of gratitude. You see that there in the text. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Thankful. It's a call to live a life of gratitude, which is, a, which is a very significant point for our consideration just based on all we know about the first audience of Hebrews. What has their life been marked by since they started following Jesus? Friends put in prison, property seized, public ridicule for, for their belief, the list goes on. And yet, here, Rather than having those hardships be the compelling factor for their outlook on life, instead of those difficulties, uh, pressing them towards things like bitterness that the preachers had to warn them against, instead, in coming to Christ, even facing those challenges and hardships, instead of being compelled toward grumbling or whatever else it may be, a true reflection on on the kingdom possession that's already becoming ours causes us to respond with a posture of gratitude. You see, what the preacher's doing here is, once again, he's just helping us lift our eyes beyond the pressure of the now that we face in this world and set that in the context of Christ's lordship over all things. He's helping us lift our eyes beyond the pressure of the now to see the privilege that's ours both now and forever through Jesus. And as we're brought to see that, we're compelled to be thankful people. There's eternal life in the presence of the living God. Is ours now and in the future. He's been talking about that at length because of what Jesus accomplished and even now as the pressure builds, he's saying in effect to this first audience, even now we have this great high priest who knows what it's like to endure these things. Remember, he can identify with us and not only that but he's the one who can make a way for us to, to persevere in these things. There's present mercy, there's future life. This is what's ours and the gift of the kingdom of God and as a result, we're not Rumbly, we're not bitter but we're thankful we're thankful and, and this element of gratitude on the one hand almost seems like a trivial thing to say be thankful as Christian believers we can hear that and it almost rolls off uh, just because it's, it, it's it's just a common thing to say it would never be the wrong answer to a question well, what should you be like as oh, I should be thankful I should be that would always be the right answer you'd always get an A on that test It almost seems like a like a, like a trite thing to say but as we reflect on it, not just as, a, as we think about it from Hebrews, but even across the Scriptures, we, we must understand that gratitude isn't just one virtue among others that mark out what, it's mean, what it means to have a heart turned toward Jesus. So, so it's not just uh, one, one thing in a list, but actually what we discover is this gratitude element is central to our living lives of faith, this, this thankful heart that we're called to have is actually one of the most main things that defines our posture of heart before the living God as people who have been saved by Jesus. Gratitude. It's a main thing. It's not one in a list. It's not peripheral. It's very central. And one way we know this is that in Romans 1, when Paul talks about the absolute fallen and lost condition of humanity under the judgment of God, when Paul talks about how, how our hearts are so turned away from God that, that, that we all deserve judgment, one of the main ways he defines humanity's crookedness before God is our ingratitude. Remember that from Romans 1? If we were to sit down with the Apostle Paul over coffee and say, listen, Paul, uh, I'm so glad we, get a, we have this chance to, to talk together. Could you just sum up... The human condition under God in a sentence. That would really be helpful for me if you could just sum that up. He would say to us, Romans 1.21, Though humanity knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. They did not give thanks to Him as God. So, so you see, right at the root of what it means to be contrary to God is to live a life not acknowledging that God Himself is the giver of all good things. That is right at the root of what it means to be contrary to God. Not being thankful to God for all He gives. That belief that that whatever I have, I made, I deserve, I want, I make, or I must get others to get it for me. It's me, us, humanity. No vertical praise God from whom all blessings flow, but instead it's ingratitude. Which which is, in, in its essence, the center of sin. No thanksgiving to God for the very breath in my mouth. Which was Eve's problem in the garden, which we could work out at length, isn't it? Look at all that God has given. What does she want? The one thing that he said she wasn't supposed to touch. She wasn't full of gratitude, but it was ingratitude. I want this one thing, even though I've been given this paradise around me. Ingratitude. And so what is the center of our lives now, having been made new in Christ? What's right at the center? Gratitude. The very opposite of that, we're living lives that are moved by all that Christ has done in order, in such a way that we have this posture of continual thankfulness before the living God for all that's offered to us in Christ. Thankfulness now rules our day as those, who Hebrews makes clear, we're new covenant believers. Our hearts have been made new and the outworking of that is now this posture of thanksgiving. So so at the very center of all our living is the reality that we're being brought into this eternal, unshakable kingdom of God through Christ. The the new creation, uh, heavenly city of Zion as Hebrews talks about it, that rest that we look forward to forever. But at our very core, our response to all of that is gratitude, which is the definitive quality of a Christian believer which we know just experientially. You you look, look around for somebody who's growing in Christ. What are they going to be like when you sit with somebody who's really flourishing as a growing Christian believer? Are they going to talk about all the things that are wrong in their life, or are they going to talk about all the things they're thankful for? They're going to talk about all the things they're thankful for. And what about somebody who's growing, you know, just by degrees a little bit more sour and sour toward Jesus? What's going to mark out that sourness in their life? Is it going to be Thanksgiving? No. No, it's going to be grumbling about these other things that are going on in their life. Thanksgiving is going to go away, and grumbling is going to come up. Right? Again, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, what does he say? Give thanks in everything. Thanks is right at the center. Gratitude toward God, because of all that He's secured for us through Jesus, is the high-ruling ethos of our hearts. Nothing can remove us from Christ's love. And on the darkest days, things may be extremely heavy and no light may seem to be going on, but still gratitude centers me in thankfulness rather than bitterness, knowing what is actually unshakable for me. All that Christ has given and will give. So so we have the unshakable kingdom. What is the response to that? Our lives are marked by gratitude. And and we're going to be working this out more practically as we go on in the next section. But, but, but I stopped here in my studies for just a second going through this because it's a convicting place to come to, just to be able to think through this well. Ask myself the question, am I a thankful person? Are you a thankful person? If, if my days are going in ways I don't like, is my first order of business complaint or is my first order of business to remember that given all that's secured for me, I have nothing ultimately but thanks to offer to the living God who promises me these unshakable realities? It's, it's a good question to ask. Am I, a, am I a thankful person? It's a hard question to answer uh, be, because it can reveal my own grumbliness, which is very real. Right? But it, but this checks us. It checks us. And not only is, is this a, a general Gospel check to run in our hearts being the central attribute of a Christian life that it is, is thankfulness. But we also see that, that, it, that it's vital to have this posture of gratitude renewed in us because it's actually through this posture of gratitude that we then serve, the, serve God with the whole of our lives. It's, it's, it's the central element that compels then our liturgical life that we're called to in Christ. So, so, if we're just putting together what the preacher's saying here in these verses so far, he's told us we, we have this unshakable kingdom, and that compels us to, re, to respond in gratitude. And then now, in the rest of almost the rest of verse 28, we, we see that it's through this posture of gratitude that we serve God acceptably. It's through gratitude now that we serve God acceptably. So, so if you look at, at verse 28 there again, and you see right, right there in the center, he says, by it, or, or by this gratitude, that's what he's referring to, we may serve God acceptably. So again, he's focused on the central role of being thankful uh, plays in our Christian life. By it or through this thankful heart, we serve God in a, in a way that's pleasing to Him. And, and it's here in this phrase that we run into this uh, word for liturgy that we talked about earlier. So this word translated serve here, if you're reading in this in the CSB translation, is that Greek word latruo, and, and it's actually a huge word in the book of Hebrews. It, it's used multiple times, and the significance of this term is critical, especially as it reappears here. Because almost every time the preacher uses the term, and he does so, uh, you could, if you want to look these up later, chapter 8, verse 5, 9, verse 9, 10, verse 2, and then again later on in chapter 13, the preacher uses the word a number of times to talk about how the old covenant system could never really purify us for true la trua, for true worship of the living God. That old covenant system with its priests and sacrifices, it was never able to provide what was necessary for us to fully express and be acceptable before God in in, in the in the liturgizing of our lives before Him, in the full worship of Him with our whole life. So all through Hebrews, this word appears in a fairly negative way, emphasizing that there can be no truly purified and acceptable liturgical living before God through the old covenant system. But then, there is this one place where the preacher uses the term that changes everything. Because in chapter nine, verse 14, contrary to all that's true about the old way of relating to God in that old covenant framework, now the preacher says, in chapter 9, verse 14, "Now that the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanses us, or cleanses our consciences from dead works, so that we can, what? So that we can, La Truo. So that we can. Live a life serving and worshiping the living God. This is what Christ has accomplished for us, you see. But what we're being told is that we've received this unshakable kingdom through all that Jesus has procured for us. And as we live our lives in gratitude for this great gift of grace, by this gratitude for all that Jesus has done, we actually live our lives from this posture of having been made pure for this liturgical worship that we're now called to offer. This is what Jesus has done. He's opened up the reality that our lives can now be offered through the medium of our thanksgiving in all things, worshipfully to God, and not only can they be offered that way, but those are actually acceptable offerings to God. He's pleased with. They're not not insufficient like the old system was, but these are now the full expressions of worship that God Himself uh, accepts, that He's pleased with. And, And so we see that it's through this posture of thanksgiving to God for salvation in Christ that we exercise the true liturgy of the life of faith, the true life of worship before Him, which again translates to everything in life, and this is why at least thematically, there's grammatically, which we'll talk more about next week, but thematically, this is why the rest of chapter 13 connects so directly to all that the preacher's been saying here. Uh, So just let your eye run down chapter 13 a little bit. Um, what, what, What you see there... This connection is going to be clear. So, so so, how do we live now as people who follow Jesus, according to chapter 13? What do we have? Well, in verses 1 to 3, what do we do? We live in a posture of love toward others, extending care for those who have need. That's verses 1 to 3. And what is the root source for our extension of of that love and care. Why do you care for people? Why do you love other people? What's behind that worshipful life before God of service to others? Well, don't the Scriptures teach us that it's the fact that we're grateful for how Christ has first loved us? Why do we love? Because of the love extended to us, which means that gratitude to God is at the very center of our concern for others. If we're going to do these things, what must we be? We must be thankful people for what God has given to us. Or, or, or just to keep going in verse 13, or chapter 13, verses four to six. What's our, our posture of heart that allows us to live a satisfied life in our marriages, free from sexual infidelity, free from the love of money? What is it that keeps us in a state of contentment? It, it, it's that we have the hope of all that's ours in Christ. Isn't it? The gratitude we have for that. The lust of the flesh, the love of money, hold nothing on the glories of the eternal kingdom. So when we're grateful for the eternal realities uh, that have been purchased for us by Christ, as we truly, genuinely, under the Word of God, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, meditate on those things, temptations that are contrary to Jesus pale, and we live a life of acceptable service before God. Gratitude. When something uh, comes into our hearts and we feel like, oh, I need this so badly. It is amazing the gospel medicine that can occur in our hearts when we step back from that thing and just say, I'm going to make a list of all the glorious things that God has provided for me, both materially and eternally. And as we do that, it is amazing how that dampens the discontentment that was starting to rise up. Thankfulness. So, So through thanksgiving in our lives... Everything from from hospitality to sexual fidelity to to contentment financially through thanksgiving for what God has provided, dissatisfaction is removed, and our lives become a liturgy. Our whole life becomes a form of service to the living God. And it's something that we're going to unpack in much more detail as we get to all the pieces of chapter 13, but we see how this is so crucial in terms of the preacher's conclusion and how all of this is connected. So we put this together again and we see, through Jesus, we're receiving this unshakable kingdom. So so an eternity of hope is ours. Even now, grace is there for our present perseverance. We have these realities currently being applied to us. Through Jesus, we are receiving an unshakable kingdom. And this great gift compels a response of gratitude. We're consumed, not not with bitterness or discontent as Christ's people, but instead we're consumed with thanksgiving because this unshakable kingdom is ours. How could we be anything but thankful? And from this posture of gratitude, our life becomes a liturgy. It's a form of worship before the living God where love and purity and contentment rule the day. And in those things, what happens? But the Lord takes great pleasure as He sees the fruit of the newness that Jesus has purchased for us manifesting in our lives in these ways. It brings Him glory. It brings Him honor. It makes Him happy and pleased. It's acceptable. And then... In, in all of this, there's also an additional attitude that pervades our thankful lives of worship. And we'll just finish quickly with this, but this is something we don't want to miss. And, and we don't want to miss it because the preacher of Hebrews, we, we we know him well now. And we know him to be a preacher of extraordinary grace, extraordinary joy, extraordinary rest and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ but he's never a preacher of those things with any level of flippancy. Everything is serious about these things. He doesn't take any of it lightly. This life of worship we offer is not one that is to presume upon the grace of God. Oh, he'll be gracious, everything's fine. But but instead, it reflects a life lived in reverential awe before God, knowing full well what? (laughs) God is a consuming fire. We live Thankful that he's ours and we live knowing that he is not a God of flippant kindness but a God of deep grace who will not stand for the rejection of his son the king. He's God and we're not. He's Master, Sovereign, King, Lord of hosts. We're weak and we're needy. And so we live before Him with grateful hearts, knowing all the while that He is the just judge and final conqueror. He's not to be trifled with. He is to be trembled before. So no cheap grace, no presuming on His kindness. Don't forget, He, he is the consuming fire toward His adversaries. The, the attitude, or at least the posture of heart, is reflected uh, just what he's talking about here. It's reflected so much in, in the character Jill's encounter with Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. You remember that in the silver chair uh, where, where Jill, she gets into Narnia. She's really thirsty. She finds this stream, or she starts to hear it and kind of follow it, and she finally finds it. And and, and there between her and the stream is the lion Aslan. You remember that? Aslan's lying there. And then, so just listen to this interaction she has with her. If you're thirsty, you may drink, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Uh, Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to... Do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now, without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. The lion didn't say this as if he were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. So so in that though, isn't there a great picture of the reverence and awe that must be there for us as we approach the living God of the universe? There's There's this sense of the fact that there is nowhere else to go. Jesus is the only one who brings life. There's no other stream. But we go to that stream Trembling, We go in a way that doesn't remotely reflect any flippancy or glibness or lightness about the significance of who this God is. We dare not engage in this life of gratitude with a posture of a kind of glib indifference because God is, after all, a consuming fire. And as we get to that, we get to the message of Hebrews in its totality. To be with Christ is to have the only source of life And we persevere in our gratitude and faith because to be apart from Him, well, He's also the one who brings all other kingdoms, including our proud little kingdoms of one, He's also the one who brings all other kingdoms shaking to the ground. So so how gracious is this God to send His Son to make us citizens of an unshakable kingdom? For, for, For this we love Him, for this we thank Him. And because of who He is, we tremble with reverential awe. And at a basic level, then, these are the grounds for our liturgical life. We're receiving this unshakable kingdom which compels a response of gratitude. And through this posture of gratitude, we serve God acceptably, always remembering He is exactly who He says He is. He is the Redeemer who will at the same time devour all who are set against Him. And with that in our minds, we do all we do To the glory of God. And so we're helped in this. And we'll be helped as we go back into chapter 13 in more detail. To see how this works out in such practical ways. Let's pray together. Father we're thankful for your word which instructs us. We're thankful for your word that brings us to a point of seeing the majesty of who you are. The glories of the Son. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. We ask Father that we would be people who are overflowing with thanksgiving. Because of all that you've granted to us. Uh, Correct our hearts as they can be grumbly at times. Mine can be grumbly at times. Uh, Give us hearts that are full of thanksgiving and gratitude because of all the assurances and all the present help that's there for us in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.